All right, if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're looking at verses 17 to 34 this morning. You might know the story of the Wizard of Oz. And in that beloved story, a girl named Dorothy and her dog Toto are picked up by... All right, we're already having mic problems. So we're just going to switch to this mic and we're going to turn this off. And uh, we'll have to figure out what's wrong with this mic. So Wizard of Oz, a girl named Dorothy and her dog Toto are carried off by a Midwestern tornado to who knows where. And when they crash land safely, it turns out to be the magical land of Oz. And Dorothy utters this immortal line there to her dog, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> if you've ever traveled to another country or to another culture, then you know that feeling. Lots of things seem the same. The sky is still blue. The sun still shines. There's still ground beneath your feet. But lots of other things are somehow disconcertingly different. The rules are different. The expectations are different. The habits and the customs and the practices are different, sometimes in a subtle way, sometimes dramatically so. Well, that's what we need to realize about church. When we gather as God's people around the cross of Jesus Christ, we are not in Kansas anymore. We are in a different place and a different kingdom, and so we can expect that many things are not going to be the same. Now, let me explain what I mean, because I'm not talking about the religious language we use in church or the practices or the rituals. If you're new to church, some of that is probably new to you. Maybe it's a little bit weird and you're just trying to figure it out, but that's not what I'm talking about this morning. And if that stuff is weird for you, we want to do everything we can to help you navigate it, translate it, be comfortable with it. So please let us know how we can help. Ask us questions. No question is a dumb question. We'd love to help. But what I'm talking about this morning has to do with the difference in how we treat one another, how we view one another, how we relate, how we work to get along. Because when it comes to our relationships and how we treat each other and how we function together, how we make decisions together in church, we are not in Kansas anymore. That's what Paul is trying to help the Corinthians to realize in today's passage. Because some of them were failing to realize that among God's people, as part of Christ's body, as Paul calls the church in today's passage, Things are done differently, and people are treated differently. Some of the Corinthians are failing to realize this. They're failing to discern it, as Paul puts it in verse 29. And as a result, things are not going very well for them. Just like things might not go very well for you if you went to a foreign culture and failed to realize that some things were done differently there. Well, for the Corinthians, here's the magnitude of the problems they were running into. First, in verse 17, the Apostle Paul tells them right off the bat, quite honestly, your meetings do more harm than good. 
Can you imagine your church leader or maybe some ministry consultant telling you that? Guess what, guys? Your gatherings? Yeah, it would be better if you did not meet at all than to do what you're doing when you gather. No church would be better than the way you guys are doing church. <laughs> Harsh, huh? Second, Paul adds, I have nothing good to say to you about this. Verse 17, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. And then again in verse 22, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner, matter. And then third, some of the Corinthians are actually getting sick, getting ill, and even dying because of the way they are relating as a community. And in verses 30 to 31, Paul speaks into the situation with prophetic insight and says, that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, that is, have died. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would such judgment. Can you imagine? Paul is drawing a connection, a cause and effect line here between what they are doing as described in this passage, and the fact that some among them are sick and some have even died. And Paul says, God is judging you. God is disciplining you. Now, Paul is not in the habit of saying this kind of thing. I can't think of anywhere else in any of this. So it's very striking. And further, notice two things about, about what Paul uh, says about this. First, Paul does not draw a one-to-one -one correspondence between the people causing the problems and how bad those people are acting, and as a result, how sick they are getting. Life is seldom that neat. We love to individualize everything. We want things to be exactly fair for each person, but people back then and in many cultures today think much more communally. So Paul is speaking generally to them all. There are problems in the church. There are big problems. And he's saying God is disciplining you as a group. And that's why you're going through serious suffering. But notice something also that Paul adds second, verse 32. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. This judgment is not an eternal one, Paul adds. It's a stiff discipline, sure, in this lifetime, but somehow in it, God's heart is that this community of Jesus followers would wise up, would grow up, so they don't face a worse or eternal judgment in the end. I don't know what you think about this kind of warning or, or the kind of suggestion that God would feel so strongly about our behavior that God would act so sternly. I realize religious leaders can and do abuse these kinds of pronouncements of judgment, and we want nothing of that. But in this case, Paul says that's what's happening here. So please, he urges, deal with it, repent, shape up. So what is going on in the Corinthian church that would cause this sort of response from Paul and from God? Well, we're not totally clear on all the details, but the general idea is clear enough. To understand it, we have to remember, as we've seen before, that it was completely normal and usual back then when worshipers met together to have a meal as a part of their worship. That's the context. 
as we've seen, the Jews would do this. They would have a meal when they brought a sacrifice to the temple in Jerusalem. The pagans would do it when they brought a sacrifice to the temple of their gods. It was normal to have a meal as part of your religious worship. And so naturally, the followers of Jesus did it too. That's what church looked like for them at that time. They didn't have church buildings back then, so they would meet in a home of, of one of the more wealthy members of the congregation usually. And if we can have the next slide, these Greco-Roman homes, the larger ones, could accommodate 40 to 60 people. So the early churches were large house churches. And when they gathered, they'd have a time of singing and praying and prophesying, as we saw last Sunday, and teaching. And they'd enjoy a meal together as well, as part of that. And as part of the meal, they'd celebrate communion or the Lord's Supper. At the beginning of the meal, when they passed around the bread, they would take time to remember that Jesus had said about the bread, this is my body given for you. And then after the meal, they would drink from a cup of wine and they would remember that Jesus said, this is my blood poured out as a new covenant for you. They'd remember Jesus' death as a part of their their worship together when they met in house churches. So far, so good. But, but here's where the problem comes in. These large churches had fancy dining rooms. For those of you that can see the image, I've highlighted it for you. Dining rooms, but these dining rooms could only accommodate nine to 12 guests. The larger atriums was where everyone else could fit. And it was pretty typical in a place like Corinth to put the honored guests in the dining room and to feed them a sumptuous high-class meal and to put everyone else out in the atrium where they would get more or less peasant food. That was just how life was done in Corinth in the first century and all over the Roman world. Because in a household, you'd have the master of the house and his male friends were high class like him. And he was always trying to impress them. And then there would be lots of others in the household, apprentices, children, a wife, servants, slaves, former slaves who'd been freed, but who still were connected to the family. And house churches were like this too. There would be slaves, there would be former slaves, there would be workers, and there would be a few high-class people. And the world was very stratified. And at meals in the ancient world, when others were invited, it was normal that not everyone was served the same food. Let me just give you an example of this from the Roman satirist Juvenal. Since I am asked to dinner, he writes... Why is it not the same dinner? Why is not the same dinner served to me as to you? You take oysters fattened in the Lucrine Lake. I suck a mussel through a hole in a shell. I take hog funguses. Golden with fat, a turtle dove gorges you with its bloated rump. There is set before me a magpie that has died in its cage. So it was normal for the wealthy. It was actually uh, 
this was, this was normal for them. It was actually a way of enjoying and reinforcing their status, which was also important in that culture. It was normal to eat and impress a few of your select friends with something much better, much better fare than you could afford to serve everyone else who was a part of your household or invited. It all depended on your status. And so it seems like something like this is going on at the meals when the believers in Corinth are gathering to worship in a house church where the Lord's death is being remembered as a part of it. Here's how Paul puts it, verse 20 to 21. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and drunk. It's possible, in fact, that the host is not providing anything here for the guests beyond the bread and a little cheap wine. That the guests are on their own for whatever they can bring, and many of them evidently couldn't afford to bring anything. While the host is making sure he and his high-class male friends get a lovely meal. And so what's the result? Verse 22, Paul accuses Do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? Everyone sees what's going on here. In the picture I showed you, the dining room was sort of down the hall from the atrium, but in other houses, it was within eyesight. And the poor people in Corinth may literally remember there may have been a famine happening around this time in Corinth. We talked about in that previous weeks. They may literally have had little to nothing to eat while they're watching the wealthy dine sumptuously. And this feels uncomfortable and shameful if you're poor, right? You have nothing and you're given nothing and you're worshiping with people who have everything and are fully enjoying it. And so verse 33, Paul concludes, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. And then probably with a note of sarcasm to those gorging themselves, anyone who is hungry should eat something at home. (laughs) In other words, Paul's not exactly telling the rich they can't enjoy themselves, but he's at least saying, do it on your own time. Not when God's people gather. And especially not when you're together to remember the body and blood of our Lord. So it's in this context that Paul reminds them of what are often called the words of communion, the words that are often said at communion time. These words that are so familiar to us, we've repeated them month by month as we've t- at communion services, and, and they're recorded here in 1 Corinthians. They're also recorded in Matthew and Mark and Luke's accounts of Jesus' last supper with his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. And did you ever notice they're just a little bit different in each instance? Read Matthew, read Mark, read Luke, read Corinthians. Because the biblical writers back then were so much, they were much more concerned with the main points than with getting every detail recorded exactly. And evidently God's okay with that too. And so it's interesting how Paul reminds the Corinthians of these words and the parts that Paul uniquely emphasizes that are different from Matthew, Mark, or Luke. There are two main things that Paul highlights that are are different from what you'll find in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And these aren't contradictions. These are just differences in emphases in what's highlighted and recorded. First 
is the reminder that Jesus instituted this meal on the night that he was betrayed. You won't find that phrase in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, although Luke has it worded differently later in the meal. It's an interesting choice by Paul for how to begin, not with on the night his enemies arrested him, but rather on the night that one of his own betrayed him. I wonder if Paul wants the Corinthians and us to remember that, that we gather around Jesus. We gather as close family. And is it possible by that the way we treat each other, we could actually be betraying Jesus? The second thing that's unique about the way Paul reminds them of the Lord's Supper is that Paul is the only one who has the phrase twice, do this in remembrance of me. The gospel writers have it after the bread. Paul has it both after the bread and after the cup. And then Paul adds, and no one has this either, for when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul is driving home a point here in how he records these words. For these Corinthians who are thinking only about themselves, Paul's saying, hey, the point of this meal is to think about Jesus, who cared for us so much that he gave his life for us. Remember that. Think about that and impact the way you treat the other people for whom Christ died. So what does Paul want them to focus on as they remember their crucified Lord through this meal? He says it in verse 29. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Discerning the body of Christ. When we eat the bread, when we drink the cup, we're supposed to discern, to recognize, to remember the body of Christ. Question, does Paul mean Christ's literal body? Or does Paul mean we're to remember Christ's people who are the body of Christ? Well, probably both, right? But let's go back and notice something. Paul already told the Corinthians once back in chapter 10 about the bread of the communion meal. Chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. He said, is not the bread that we break a participant body of Christ? And then listen to this. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. We are one body because we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and when we do, we all share one loaf. Now, sorry we're still doing these little individual wafer things. I know COVID and germs and all that. But the point of the meal is, and the symbolism is, we all share one loaf and we are all one body, the body of Christ. And now here, Paul, again in our passage, verse 29, those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Yes, Christ's physical body on the cross, for sure, but also at least as much Christ's body, the people, the one loaf unified for whom Christ died. 
Do you see how the Lord's Supper is a profoundly communal meal? It's where we celebrate our unity, our community, that we are God's family because Christ died for all of us. We're the body. We're the one loaf. And as we love to say, and it's so true, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. If we could go to that slide. Nope. There we go. We are not in Kansas anymore. We're in a new place. We're in a new culture. We're in a new kingdom. We're part of a new people. And here, we do things Jesus's way. And so your status doesn't matter. And your paycheck doesn't matter. And your degree doesn't matter. And how good your English is doesn't matter. How long you've been following Jesus doesn't matter. And how long you've been attending this church doesn't matter. If we follow Jesus Christ, and if we have put our faith in him, then we are equally one body together. The one people of God. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so Paul is outraged that the rich, high-class church people in Corinth are showing off their wealth and glorying in their status and shaming and humiliating those who have nothing. Because this is not how we do things in Jesus' kingdom. And it's in this context that we need to hear verses 27 to 29. Paul says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Boy, how often we have taken those words right out of context and made them mean something Paul never meant them to mean. That's what happens when you take something out of context. A friend of mine was once going through some relationship difficulties with her boyfriend. It was one of those weird situations where she wasn't exactly sure if they were on or if they were off, if they were still together or if they weren't. And she felt that them breaking up was best, that their relationship wasn't healthy, but, but she wasn't sh sure what he thought. And, and she didn't. And then she received this text from him. I'm glad it's over. Then a minute later, it was good though. And she was pretty relieved. <laughs> and she was going to text him back, oh, I'm glad too. But then she realized he had just gotten out of a meeting. And she, he was texting her about the meeting and not the relationship. And that should remind us how much context can affect what words actually mean. Well, so often well-meaning church leaders have taken Paul's words out of context here. This warning that we not take communion unworthily and that we must examine ourselves. 
And, and they've been turned into some kind of individualistic private inventory where we rack our brains and our consciences lest we forget to confess some private sin. Or we worry whether, we've been, whether we're sufficiently sorry for what we did last night or what we said on the way to church this morning in the car. So we wonder if we're worthy to participate in this meal. And I'm not saying there isn't a place for any of that, but that's not the context of these words. The context is some rich, high-class, self-satisfied who are callously feasting on their wealth and their status while rubbing it in the noses of those who are poor. All the while, they're supposed to be remembering the death of a Lord who died on the cross and who died poor with nothing, because he gave up everything for them. Do you see the mismatch? Paul is warning these rich Corinthians that their relationships look nothing like they should in the kingdom of God. And Paul is saying, this is not celebrating Christ's death in a worthy manner. And you better realize this, you better discern this yourself, or else God is going to keep discerning it for you, and that's not going to go well. These words, Paul's warning here, were, were never meant to forever stamp the Lord's Supper as a somber, introspective event. And, and if that's what you're used to, and that's what you're comfortable with, I'm sorry for stepping on your toes. The truth is, though, that, that that approach to the Lord's Supper is not what the Bible is asking for. I'm not saying it's wrong, and I'm not saying that, that a somber reflection of our sin and guilt is, or what I am, is that, is that a somber reflection of our sin and guilt is not the only way to approach this meal. In fact, what does Paul call the meal back in chapter 10, verse 16? He calls the cup the cup of thanksgiving. We can be thankful at this meal. It can be a celebration. Though certainly Paul's concern is that we better make sure that we're treating right and that we're in reconciled relationship as much as we're able with the other people at the meal. Okay, well, how do we apply this then, this, this whole passage? Well, when we get together with God's people, we better remember that we are not in Kansas anymore. Maybe we're not super wealthy, like some of the Corinthians, and we're, maybe we're not bringing our class prerogatives into communion meals. But what do we bring from the world out there into church without even thinking about it? I'll tell you that the biggest thing we bring, I think, is we bring our consumer mentality into church. We bring the idea that we're, we're choosing a church to, to meet our spiritual needs or the needs of our family. And so here have been some of my temptations around this. As someone raised in American culture, this would be during the times when I wasn't a pastor. In my 20s, my temptation was that I was coming to church, at least in part, looking for love. I was looking for a church with great young Christian women. Thankfully, I found one. Um, I was also looking for a church where I could use my gifts, where I could teach, where I could lead a small group. I was looking for the satisfaction that I could feel from doing something worthwhile and something I believed in. 
In my late 30s, during the time I wasn't a pastor, our family was looking for a church, among other things, with a decent kids program. We had little kids. These things are wrong in and of themselves, right? But here's the question. Is that all you're here for? And what happens? How do I respond when I don't wind up getting what I showed up for? When my expectations are disappointed and when my desires are thwarted. What are you here for this morning? Are you here for yourself? Guess what? We're not in Kansas anymore. This space is about Jesus's kingdom. And he's not just about what's best for you. He does care about you deeply, but he's about what's best for his whole body. Here, it's not about me or you. It's about us because it's about him. For him. If you're here for him, then he says, here's my body. Learn to love these people. And because the ground is level at the foot of the cross, that's going to have some implications for what it means to love one another. Because some people in any church inevitably have more than others. Maybe more money, maybe more influence, maybe they're part of the in crowd, or their words carry more weight than others. We'll call these ones the strong ones. In Corinth, these were the ones who hosted the church. They had the space, they had the money, they had the higher social class. But then in any church, there are other people who feel on the periphery, maybe vulnerable, maybe unseen, maybe not sure if they belong. Maybe they don't know as much. Maybe they don't have as much to contribute. We could call these ones the weak ones. And here's how things in Christ's kingdom, in Christ's body work. The strong learn how to care for the weak. The strong are especially cognizant of welcoming the weak and including the weak, not in a patronizing, disrespectful way, in a genuine, loving way. Not overlooking the weak or ignoring them like the strong in Corinth were doing, Paul's concern is that in God's family, in Christ's kingdom, the strong learn to care for the weak. The strong share what they have. They lay down their prerogatives to build others up. So that the ground will be level at the foot of the cross. And so that the whole body can grow to be healthy, unified, and mature together.